If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and while you're turning there, I just want to draw your attention to a couple of things. Um, many of you know that we, uh, we um, take underwear and socks and make blankets for a lot of the displaced kids that are in, the, uh, in a couple of the elementary schools, and we received a call from Hodge Elementary. Uh, there are several kids there that come from various types of shelters and homes and whatnot, and so there is a need for the younger ones, uh, for, uh, for some underwear and those types of things. That announcement there is in page 7, so if you would like to give to that, uh, please uh, either write it on your check or uh, bring the money by the office, whatever you want to do. Uh, but I would uh, just encourage you to uh, give to that. We need about $750 so we can supply them with what they need. And then also, uh, every year what we do is uh, uh, just remind you that we have our summer camps coming up. And uh, our goal is to make sure that no matter what, every kid that wants to go can go, uh, regardless of how much or how little they can pay. So if you're interested in giving to a scholarship fund to uh, make sure that our kids are able to go to camp, uh, we run two camps, uh, the kids' camp, which is in July, and middle school, high school camp, which is D3, which is in June. And uh, whatever you give would be appreciated so that we can make sure that uh, they are able to go to camp. And if you're not familiar with our camps, uh, yes, camps are fun, uh, but they're also very uh, rigorous as far as studying of the Word of God, uh, and uh, it's not just a place just to go and have fun uh, where they could do anywhere, but it's, it's the goal is to help them to grow, to mature spiritually for those who don't know Christ, to introduce them to the gospel and to explain the gospel. And uh, we also ask that you be in prayer when we're in camp as well. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as always, we are grateful for the great privilege we have to open your word today as we worship you. We ask that you would enable us, Father, to grasp and comprehend the word, what is being said, uh, to be able to grasp an understanding of what is being said and how, Lord, it is to be applied to the way that we live, to the way that we think, that, Father, our whole life may be lived in a way that pleases you. And, Father, we know from reading your word that if we we live according to the wisdom of the Word of God, we know, Lord, that we will truly have a fulfilling life that is filled with joy, happiness, a sense of satisfaction. We will have strength to deal with the difficulties of life. We will have endurance to be able to overcome the ongoing difficulties of life as we all continue to live looking forward to your soon return when sin will be once and for all dealt with. And so, as always, Father, we ask that you would bless your word to us this morning. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, 
became the foolishness of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now we're going to take a, a couple of weeks dealing with this passage because it's really packed with an enormous amount of information that is important for us not to overlook. And sometimes just by reading through it, we, we kind of think we have a grasp of what he's talking about. Uh, but I want you to know that it goes a whole lot deeper than you ever imagined. Um, and I think that you will see that in the coming weeks ahead. Again, remember that the solution to the Corinthian problem that was mentioned last week, when they, were, you know, they have divided up into various types of groups because of their aligning with various types of teachers, uh, they had shifted their attention away from Christ onto prominent leaders. Now again, Paul's not depreciating the value of ministers, but he wanted to remind them that none of these ministers, none of these teachers had given their life for their salvation, that only Christ had done that. So they couldn't replace Christ. Paul also realized, even though he had a position of authority, he wanted to make sure that as a personality, as a teacher, that he was also not causing any problems in the church because people were thinking that if they were his disciple, they were somehow superior to others. And so he wanted to make sure that he kind of put that, all those things kind of to rest, that he wasn't interested in that. He wasn't interested in people following him. Uh, he was only interested in, in raising up Jesus Christ. When it comes to his preaching, he mentions that his words were not based on clever speech and ingenious salesmanship, but on the redemptive power of Jesus at, at Calvary. So he wasn't saying that he was dumbing down the message. He's not doing that. He just wants them to know that he was not trying to overwhelm them with fancy words and terms and trying to find a way to, to show them how brilliant he was philosophically. And even though they might not have grasped what he was saying, they go, well, whatever Paul's saying, it must be true because, man, that guy can talk and follow him. He, he wanted to make sure they explained really, in a sense, the simplicity of the gospel because that is the power of God to salvation to those who would believe. So Paul knew that many of the Corinthians, though, were very enamored by worldly wisdom. That was kind of the custom of the day. Uh, if, you, if you were wealthy, you had a lot of leisure time, and different philosophers would come into the towns and cities, and they would kind of set up shop, uh, go into open areas, they would begin to teach, they would begin to talk, and individuals would kind of rate them on their ability to communicate. And they go, man, this guy is great. This guy sounds good. I mean, and, they, and as a result of that, they were enamored with the one who, could, who was the most eloquent. And so that was kind of a, a big thing back then. <clears throat> and so they kind of got caught up in that. You know, the Corinthian church got caught up in that because it was the culture that they were in. They got, they got caught up in those kinds of things. So he doesn't want them to be misled really by empty rhetoric. He doesn't want them to be misled by deceptive arguments. He doesn't want them to miss out on really the simple message of Christ. Now remember that when we talk about the simple message of Christ, it's simple in one sense, but that does not mean it's not very profound. It does not mean that it's, has a, a, it's very broad in its application. It doesn't mean that it's simplistic. So it's simple to grasp the essence of what the gospel is, but it is definitely not simplistic. Because the gospel message itself is able to answer all of the questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? How do I understand the world around me? All those different things that people need to be asking and should be asking. The message of the cross of Jesus Christ really does have not only a very sensible answer to those things. I would say that it has really the only answer that makes sense 
It is the only answer that is really logical in every sense of the word, and all the rest of the answers that are out there just completely fall apart. And we're going to see that again in the coming weeks ahead as we look a little more deeply at the way Paul phrases uh, the sentences that he's using here and talking about this subject. Now, Paul, again, wasn't, he wasn't against those who were carefully preparing what they said. He wasn't an anti-intellectual, so to speak. But again, he was very much uh, disappointed with those who were trying to impress people with their knowledge or with their speaking ability. And so, once again, he's just saying, look, I'm just here to talk about, the, about the Christ and redemption and what that means, what, what that uh, means to the individual, and that it, is, it contains within it the power to save. So as he talks about wisdom in this passage, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of man, we want to make sure that we have a really good understanding of what we mean when we talk about wisdom. And what I mean by that is what do Christians mean when we speak about wisdom? We need to make sure we have a good understanding of that because he's not just talking about, again, an individual being smart or having knowledge. He wants us to understand that, that if an individual has wisdom, has intellectual capacity to answer these difficult questions, it is also something that should be seen in the way they live their life. It has an impact on all of living. Uh, that's one of the ways that you measure its truthfulness is are these things or can these things be applied to living life, real life? Does it, does it, does it, not, when I say does it work, I don't only mean in a pragmatic sense, though that is very much there, but is it logically consistent with what's going on in the world, with what's happening in me, and with the truth that we have from the Word of God. So when Paul speaks of wisdom, I think I have the definition in your notes of biblical wisdom, which is the ability to handle matters skillfully, to exercise sound judgment, and to apply the truths of Scripture to one's conduct. So there's a lot there with wisdom. Wisdom really, uh, when someone is wise, it gives them the ability to live life to live life fully, to flourish in life, to make right decisions, to be able to make right judgments, to be able to figure people out, to figure out circumstances, because the wisdom of God is all-encompassing in that way. And so, we, again, we want to back and make sure we recognize that, because, again, we live in a time when it has been a common practice for quite a while for Christianity in, in general to kind of diminish the impact of the gospel where we think of the gospel or we speak of the gospel as only being that which applies to what happens to you when you die. Now, it's clearly that. There's no denial of that. But it is something that affects all of life. It has an impact on every aspect of life. Christians should never approach the life here on earth as if we're just kind of holding on and kind of biding our time until... We die or the Lord comes, and then, then life really begins. Life has already begun for us as believers. What we do now, as well as what we do in the future, is important. It makes a difference. So it's never this idea that, that Christianity or religion has nothing to do with our living situations. It has a great deal to do with that. And so, thus, when we have the wisdom of God, we then are able to handle matters very skillfully. We're able to exercise sound judgment. We're able to apply the truths of the scripture to our conduct. Wisdom from the Lord then guides the believer to live in an upright, a virtuous, and well-pleasing manner. Believe it or not, seeking to live that way will bring to your life great joy, happiness, and satisfaction. The wise person is committed to God. Remember now, what we're 
But that statement is based on what the Word of God teaches us. The world does not believe that. The world does not believe that a wise person is committed to God. They believe a wise person and they, and they can fill in the blank. You know, someone who has maybe achieved academic scholarship, they're able to do this, they're able to do this, they're very clever. But the scripture tells us that the wise man is one who has committed himself to God. He is devoted to the will of God and is obedient to his word. So it's not just about knowledge. It's not that we're dismissing knowledge because it's a part of it. But it's, it is, that is not the singular ruler or standard that we use to measure if an individual is wise or not. There are several facets of wisdom. I'm going to go through these rather rapidly. I think I have all these references there in your notes, so if you find yourself unable to turn quickly enough to them, uh, that is okay. My intent is not to dwell on them very long. But there's various facets of wisdom that the Bible speaks about. There is an intellectual dimension uh, in which high moral and spiritual truths are taught. Philippians 4.11 says, I guide you, that's God, or wisdom, guides you in the way of wisdom to lead you along straight paths. So the straight paths, the straight and narrow, I'm I'm being led by God, I'm being led by God's word, by the wisdom of God to live in this right way. There's an ethical dimension in which virtues as righteousness, justice, and equity are uh, commended. And you find that throughout the book of Proverbs where it talks about seeking to achieve righteousness. There's this comparison between the righteous and the wicked. Uh, It speaks of the justice of God. It speaks about the, the righteous man who seeks justice on earth, who lives in a just manner and whatnot. Wisdom also stresses the importance of revering God. Proverbs 1 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. And again, throughout the book of Proverbs, that becomes clear that reverencing God, acknowledging God for who He is, developing that relationship with God is paramount to you and I living life now. When I, and when I, again, when I'm talking about living life, I mean in the fullest sense. I don't mean just that we're just existing and just holding on but that we are able to embrace all of life. Believers should be those kinds of individuals, almost like the Renaissance man, the one that loves language and history and loves art and music and loves relationships and all those things. We enjoy all of those things to the full because we know who we are in Christ, because the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Wisdom also means that we are those who care for the needy. God-given sound judgment also indicates how one can lead a satisfying life. In Proverbs 2, beginning of verse 20, Thus you will walk in the ways of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous, for the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it. The scripture embraces, I mean the scripture urges believers to embrace the wisdom of God and to forsake the foolishness of the world. Proverbs chapter 3, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. And when the Bible speaks of prosperity, often it doesn't exclude money, but it's not only money. Right? It's not, it doesn't exclude physical wealth. It does include that, but it means in every aspect of life, you're going to find prosperity. You will be rich because you will have many friends. You will be rich because you have many counselors. You will be rich because you have this uh, vigorous, vibrant relationship with, with the God who has created all things. Your life will prosper. Whatever you put your hand to, your plans, whether it's your work or your gardening or your farming, whatever it happens to be, you will prosper because God will prosper you and you will have 
the discipline. You will have the fortitude that's necessary for these things to take place. The prudent individual, again, tends to enjoy a productive life, peace with the Lord, and spiritual joy. Proverbs chapter 3 again, this time beginning in verse 16. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Those who lay hold of her will be blessed. And the her there is speaking of wisdom. So again, the idea is, is that we will have peace in this life. I think I, I mentioned to you before that uh, the individual who is credited to being really the first uh, individual to advance a, a, what we would call a Darwinian philosophy of life. This is before Darwin was ever born. Um, uh, this individual, Epicurus, was one who is, he was kind of a philosopher and, and he was, didn't really believe in God. And of course, when he lived thousands of years ago, he didn't believe that any gods existed. So, but he didn't make that known because, you know, you get down before the time of Christ, if you didn't believe in a God, if you were, if you were considered an atheist, people were kind of upset with you. They thought that you would even bring them bad luck and, and they would kill you uh, because, you know, that was just such an unpopular position. It was a very superstitious time and people were very much afraid. But this man, he, as he was thinking about life, he was asking himself, what is the one thing that causes man to be unable to enjoy life? And his answer was belief in God. And the reason why he came up with that was he says, all men know they're going to die one day. And there, this belief in God that he's going to judge men for the good and the bad that they have done puts so much pressure on man now that he can't enjoy life. So man, if he wants to enjoy life, needs to be freed from the superstition to not believe in God, throw that heavy burden off, and therefore he can live life to the fullest and enjoy life and at least experience happiness during his short existence. Now it's interesting, he never became a hedonist himself. He believed the best way to achieve a happy life was to live a balanced life. Uh, but hedonism was kind of born out of that, uh, that idea that, well, since we only have the here and now, might as well do all that you can, you know, kind of reach for the gusto, so, uh, so to speak, uh, because this is all there is. So this idea then that uh, man has this heavy burden is true. Everyone has this burden. That's why we don't like to. That's why people don't like to, to talk about death, because it's just it's kind of a bummer. I mean, I know I'm going to die one day. I don't need to make my life worse by thinking about it. Uh, we'll just kind of deal with that when it comes. But there's this pressure that's put on man, and of course, man feels guilty for the bad things that he does. Uh, you know, it's not guilt is not just something that Christians go through. Everyone deals with guilt. We find different kinds of ways to deal with it. It has been said through the years. Uh, you don't hear this being said too much now by doctors because this really isn't a category they tend to think in. But maybe as, uh, as early as the 1970s, there are still a good number of medical doctors who did state that they believed that um, if, if there was a cure for guilt, that 70% of their patients would no longer be their patients. I mean, they truly believed that. You know, that wasn't just some nice saying because, you know, they were just thinking philosophically one day and they, they wanted to sound smart. There were many, many individuals, and that had been said throughout the decades, uh, in the 70s and the 60s and the 50s and the 40s, where medical doctors would say that individuals were suffering all these physical ailments and what was the, at the root of these things 
was guilt. And of course, because of guilt, you'll, you make certain decisions. Because of guilt, you worry. Because of guilt, you have anxiety. Because of guilt, you make other bad decisions. You live a certain way. And as a result, all of these things compound on the health of the individual, both mental and physical. And the individual has all kinds of difficulties. And so they view guilt as being the culprit of that. And of course, those medical doctors who are believers... Uh, not only agreed with that assessment, but they also believed that the remedy for that was not to make guilt magically disappear, but the remedy would have been obviously uh, coming to Christ and believing in him. So again, in the, Pro- the book of Proverbs, there's a contrast with the foolish person or the one who's not wise. This individual reaps sorrow, emptiness, and death. Proverbs chapter 4 Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. For they cannot sleep till they do evil. They are robbed of slumber till they make someone fall. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The fruit of wisdom, as we know, according to the word of God, is superior to gold and silver. So those who appropriate God's truth or God's word are pleasing to the Lord. And again, he condemns those who reject his wisdom. Proverbs 12 says, A good man will obtain favor from the Lord, but he will condemn a man who devises evil. A man will not be established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will not be moved. Now, what we also know from our study from before this, when we were in the book of Ecclesiastes, that even though we have a contrast between the results of wisdom versus the, versus the results of foolishness, and that is generally true, there are exceptions. In other words, there are times when godly, hard-working people do not thrive materially. Likewise, there are instances where people may be lazy, deceitful individuals, and they have an abundance of material possessions. And as I said, we saw this, and that was the enigma that that we were looking at as we worked our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. But truly wise people not only possess the wisdom of God, but they're also humble because they are also very much aware of the depth of their ignorance. In other words, the more they learn, they more, the more they realize how little they really know. That's another aspect of Christianity, which again claims to be a religion of wisdom, of great wisdom. But what put a bad taste in the mouth of so many people about Christianity was Christianity also stressed humility. Because we know that compared to God, we don't know anything. We are dependent upon him for everything. And most of the cultures viewed humility as weakness. They viewed humility as something that you did not want to have. To them, it was a big negative. Uh, They thought that not only was it a sign of weakness, but it meant that the individual lacked worth or dignity. And of course, when we look at the Bible, we look at Christianity, humility is a cornerstone characteristic of Christianity. Biblical humility, biblical humility, I should say, involves an absence of arrogance. And it's rooted again in the understanding that all that we are and all that we have, we owe to God himself. It's not because of any giftedness that we ourselves possess, because even that giftedness that we may have comes from God himself. So when you read Philippians, it reminds us that a humble person is secure enough to praise God and to praise other people. He doesn't have to live in self-exaltation because that's the wise individual. The wise individual is comfortable with his own humility, comfortable knowing that he is a dependent creature, that he is dependent upon God, that we are dependent upon other people, and that we are unable to make it on our own. If you were to the book of James, chapter 3, for just a moment, 
James gets into this. James chapter 3, I'll begin reading in verse 13. It reads this way, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So James here comments at length on the nature of godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. There were some teachers in the first century who claimed they were wise and that they understood God's ways. And so what James does here is he admonishes those would-be sages to prove their moral insight and their intellectual perception by living in an honorable way. When you go through the book of 1 John, he's dealing with the problem of the Gnostics and their teaching. The Gnostics were those who believed that they had special, unique revelation, connection with God. Or, depending on what kind of branch it is, with the gods or with the spirits. But they were claiming that they had unique uh, and superior spiritual insight. And so as they were explaining these things to individuals, Christians, because it was sleeping into the church, Christians then would begin to think that maybe their faith in Christ wasn't enough. These individuals have superior knowledge. I, I, I want to have what they have. I want to have that connection. And what John points out to them is that individuals who truly have this spiritual insight you can see it in the way they live. It's not necessarily that they have fancy words or they sound smart. It's the way they treat people. And you evaluate what they say. What do they say about God? What do they say about people? And he makes some very strong, powerful statements in the book of John where he says things that if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. He just comes up and just says it. He says you don't know God. There's, there's a definite connection between true wisdom, between true intellectual knowledge, and the issues of morality. Those two are always together according to God, according to the Word of God, and in the living of life. And so the idea is, is that, so you say that you're wise, then prove it by the way that you're living your life. And most of the Gnostics and some of the ones that James is talking about, they looked down on the people. They were pawns in their eyes. They were people they could take advantage of, people who should be serving them. And so they just they had everything backwards. And so James here and John and First John, they write to, they want to encourage the believers and want them to understand that, no, you know God. And this is how you know God. And this is how you ought to be living. And you don't, you don't have to worry about having some kind of special, unique revelation. We all have the same revelation. God has given to all of us. God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't give one individual special revelation, but not you. He's given to all of us. That's why we all have our own copy of the Word of God. So we can read for ourselves what God has revealed, what God has preserved for us. So here James in chapter, uh, here in the book of James, he wants these individuals, these sages, these individuals who say that they're wise, he wants them to prove their moral insight. He wants them to prove that they have intellectual perception by living in an honorable way. He wants them to show their expert knowledge by doing good works with humility that comes with godly wisdom. And again, against the backdrop of humility and graciousness, 
uh, that characterizes a truly wise person, then you can very easily spot cheap imitations. It just doesn't take long for the, the would-be sage for his arrogance or for her arrogance to come out. It doesn't take long for us to recognize by the way they treat people if the individual truly has the wisdom or the kind of wisdom that we should be searching for or the wisdom that comes from God. If they have earthly wisdom, if its source is earthly, then they are going to treat people very differently. They are going to to treat people with disdain. They're going to become cynical. And that's why, again, the Bible points out to us, as Jesus points out in the Sermon on the Mount, that by the way that we treat each other as believers, that that's a very profound witness to the non-believing world. He actually states that it is evidence and proof that God has sent his Son into the world. This is really an incredible thought when you try to develop that in your mind, when you read what Jesus says about that. So it, it can never just be talk. We can never just talk about how much we love each other, how we care for each other. It's always about living those things out, doing those things that we, not, that we ought to be doing. So those who have what we would call worldly wisdom as opposed to biblical wisdom, they are characterized by bitterness, by envy, by selfish ambition. It, it's going to come out. It's going to be there. It may be hidden for a long time. It may come out only in certain small circles, but it's going to be there. It's always there. In fact, when you continue to read through the book of James, he spotlights, again, the real source of worldly wisdom. The jealousy and the selfishness it spawns originate from below. It's not from above. James states that where envy and selfish ambition are present, the natural result is confusion and a variety of immoral behaviors. And we see that continuously. Whether it's in politics, whether it's in religion, including Christianity, when individuals are are pursuing things in a selfish way, what happens? There's going to be confusion and all kinds of immorality take place. It It just never fails to go in that direction. It's always there. Divine wisdom is always known for its purity and its compassion. This, in turn, will promote tranquility and harmony along with gentleness and humility in the life of the individual. So again, the wisdom that's from above is also characterized by sensibility and kindness, mercy and love, impartiality and sincerity. None of those virtues come about immediately in the life of a person when he becomes a believer. But those virtues do come out as the Holy Spirit cultivates them as believers yield to God's will. Now the reason why this is important is because in the next several weeks I'm going to be making some statements that are very, very strong that will be very much politically incorrect. Uh, Things that are still true, according to what the Word of God says, but this is where we have to be very careful as believers. Because we possess the truth, remember, just making that statement itself, the world just flips out when we we say that we have the truth. You know, they suddenly want to begin to mock us. Oh, so you're like the only ones? Who do you think you are? What are the rest of us? And they, you know, they're going to launch into a lot of different avenues uh, in trying to find ways to put us down because we would make such a bold statement. But it's still true. We have the truth. All right? We don't have the truth because we're superior to anybody else. We have the truth because we simply believe what God has given to us. God has revealed it to us. So when we get into the area, we begin to compare just a little bit. When you compare Christianity with other religions or you compare Christianity with other philosophies, What continues to become very clear is this. 
Every single religion that is out there, except for Christianity, is going to contradict itself. Every single one. All of them. Without exception. When it comes to philosophy, any and every philosophy that is not rooted in the truth of the Word of God always, in the end, will contradict itself. Always. It, that, and I'm hopefully, when I show you some of those things, not only will you go, wow, that, that's true. Because I'll never forget, the first time I read Francis Schaeffer, you know, he's a worldview guy, and he's dead now, but he was magnificent. First time I read him, i have been a Christian for a long time. You know, I was in my 20s, I became a believer when I was about 10. I was uh, in my early 20s when I read his stuff. And the thing that struck me was I kept shaking my head and this thought kept going through my head. And it was always this, wow, it really is true. I mean, I never, I never doubted that Christianity was true. I always believed the Bible was true. But what he opened my eyes to was that there was a biblical view of everything. And the Bible is true on everything it talks about. And I just couldn't get that out of my head. Because as the more that I read, it was just blowing my mind as he evaluated philosophy and music and art and culture and kept showing what the Word of God had to say. And I was like, man, this is incredible. We have the truth. This is really awesome stuff. And so Paul here in Corinthians makes some really strong statements in this chapter about the wisdom of the world and, and how the wisdom of God is viewed by the world as foolishness. Let's just go ahead and call it foolishness. So now we can say the foolishness of God is going to confound the wise. And it does so in so many ways. It's absolutely amazing. So we need to make sure that we have this this biblical wisdom. That we understand that we are to live in kindness and grace and gentleness. uh, As well as um, in a loving manner. So that we don't come across arrogant. People are going to, you know, people may want to see that. We need to make sure that we're not shooting ourselves in the foot. We need to make sure that we are always those who will represent the gospel as a people who have received the gift from the Lord. Not that we have created it. Not that we on our own have discovered it and we somehow can brag about it ourselves. No, we are just the recipients of God's grace and goodness. And we want to share this message with others. But we need to be living out in the biblical wisdom that uh, Paul and James talks about in the scripture. So that people can see the attitude. They can see the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ himself. We are to be that. Firm? Yes, absolutely. Non-compromising? Absolutely. But at the same time, we are to be, we are to be, to be leading the charge in being loving and kind and gracious. That's why then he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So I'm hoping that we'll get a a deeper and a better grasp of what Paul is saying here in this passage. And that we'll recognize what it is that we possess as believers. That we do possess that which is absolutely true in every way. That we have nothing to be ashamed of. And no matter how intelligent or how smart the world may sound, what they believe in cannot hold a candle to what God has given to us in the word. They, it, is an, it is impossible for them to live out their life consistently by what they say they believe. It is an impossibility. The only ones who can do that is Christians, and we can only do that with the help of God himself. But it's not because we're going to be walking into logical inconsistencies. 
That would never happen for the believer. We believe what the scripture says. We will never walk into logical inconsistencies. The world lives in logical inconsistency. And they've kind of adapted to that way of living life. It's just, it's nuts, to say the least. That's why we know that it's so important for us to pray that God would open the eyes and the hearts of men and women to believe the gospel because they are blinded by their own sin. In the same way that we, before we became believers, were blinded by our own sin. We are affected deeply by the curse of, of sin itself. And apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, enabling us to be reconciled to God, we are doomed to live in our own stupidity and ignorance until the Lord returns. And the only way that's going to be overcome is with the really, it is, it's the simple message of Christ. Just remember, it's not simplistic. You don't have to have a degree in philosophy. You don't have to have a degree in world religions. You don't have to be able to figure out all these complexities of what individuals believe. Because remember that the simple message of Jesus Christ really is the power of God to salvation. And so I'm trusting that we'll see that in the days and weeks ahead and that you and your hearts once again will be strengthened and you will be encouraged with what it is that you believe and realize that we have something to share with the world. We have something that is strong and powerful. And yes, they do view it as foolishness, absolutely. And we proudly proclaim that foolishness because that foolishness will still confound the wise. Let's pray. Father Heaven, we thank you once again for your grace. And Lord, as we read your word, it is amazing as to how profound it is. Lord, as we take our time and, and kind of weave our way through the sentences, through the phrases that Paul uses, Lord, it's astounding as to what he was stating. The universal truths that are here are mind-boggling. But Father, before we engage in all those things, it is important that we ourselves recognize that as believers in Jesus Christ, we should be seeking biblical wisdom. That we should desire to have the knowledge of God, not only in our minds, but that we would possess it. And that it would possess us. That, Father, we would live our lives as individuals who have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, Father, that we would appear to others to be the sons and daughters of Jesus Christ himself. That we would be kind patient, that we would be gracious, that we would not in any way be arrogant, that we would be gentle with all, that we would not be argumentative, that we would be loving and, and we would be willing to sacrifice for others, that there would be a willingness to be inconvenienced, that there will always will be a very strong uh, attitude of humility, that, Father, we are simply the recipients of your grace and goodness, we, the recipients of your truth and knowledge, the recipients of your Son, Jesus, the recipients of your word. And, that, Father, we are simply caretakers of that which you've given to us. We want to understand that as best we can and share that with others. Father, as always, we do pray for those here this morning who may not really know Christ. They, they may recognize, Lord, that they have a head knowledge about the gospel, but when they look at their lives, they know that they themselves still have a great deal of bitterness. There's a lot of cynicism inside. They find that they don't have the joy and happiness and sense of contentment that believers say that we have. They find themselves very unhappy, unhappy with themselves, unhappy with life. Maybe at times with a sense of hopelessness, not really having a sense that, that life is, is good 
maybe even a sense of dissatisfaction with their own life, where they've become disenchanted with people, with society, with government, with whatever it is. I pray, Lord, that the emptiness that they are experiencing, that, Lord, that, that you would cause them and help them to think about it even much more often than they do. We pray they would evaluate where they really are in life. We pray, Lord, that they would come to the firm conclusion that they don't know Christ, but that they can. That they can come to you. They can believe in Christ. They can receive the gift that you've offered to us. And all of their life, including their future, will be changed. And they would then be able to share in the good things that we as believers have. The good life that we possess. The joy and happiness that supersedes all of the horrific circumstances we may still find ourselves in. So Father, we pray that you would allow us as believers to portray that to others. That despite our difficulties and problems, we have great joy. And we pray, Lord, that those who are experiencing these great difficulties, we pray they would at least recognize the shallowness of the joy they think they have. And Lord, they would come to you. Father, as always, we thank you for your patience with us and again for preserving your word. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.